Open with me in Matthew chapter 28, page 1549 in your pew Bible. Hope is trusting God that the future will be better. Our world needs hope. Our nation needs hope. Individuals need hope. You know, pastors need hope. This is a day where they struggle about how to dress. Uh, it is the one day where they can look like Easter eggs and get away with it. One of my fellows told me today I look like one and in that Easter eggs are pretty, and that really helped the situation a lot. I do appreciate that. But uh, one pastor was uh, doing a children's sermon one Sunday morning, called the children up front. They sat on the steps, and he took a few moments with them before they returned to their seat. And the church, of course, was uh, that particular day was dressed out in uh, lilies and um, uh, folks dressed a little different that particular day, a traditional Easter service. And he looked at the kids and said, what's different about the church today? And one kid said, it's full. <laughs> Even churches need hope. There's a great need for hope. We here at Beach Haven believe in the hope of Jesus Christ. And so next Sunday, we will have and host Steve Foster to speak Sunday morning through Wednesday night to offer the hope of the gospel to our community and our world. You see in your worship guide a schedule of pre-service meetings and meetings at 7 o'clock at night. I want to ask you to do all that you can to be a part of, um, of that. Wednesday night's a great and special night. Our families from 180 miles uh, in radius from here will gather together for dinner at 6 and then at 7. And wouldn't you love to see someone in your family or maybe a friend or maybe a neighbor meet the hope of Jesus Christ? There is no better way than person-to-person -person communication and person-to-person -person contact. You can use all the social media, the mass media. You can have bells and whistles for days and the most facilitating um, uh, speaker available to you, but it will fall flat unless people pray and love others and invite all that they can to be a part of that particular meeting. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you were responsible for helping change the eternity of someone in the future because you brought them to a meeting and prayed for them and they met the hope and salvation of Jesus Christ. I can't think of anything better uh, than that for a follower of Jesus Christ. God responds to prayer and love and the sharing of His Word. And when that happens, He intervenes and saves lost people. And we believe in that because of Matthew 28, our text uh, this morning. I want you to look at verse 6, where we will find when Jesus rose from the dead, He raised your vital hopes with Him. In verse number 6, the angel spoke the greatest words ever spoken. He said of Jesus, He is not here, for He is risen, as He said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Past tense. For as long as Jesus is resurrected, your vital hopes are resurrected. Well, what vital hopes of mine did Jesus raise from the dead? Well, the first one is this, truth. The resurrected Jesus resurrects your hope for truth. Now, is that not a good word for this day? In a day of fake news and distortion, that's good news. Someone has said a, a statement in the past that really is no, re no longer relevant today. He said, sir, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Do you know 
that many people in the centers of power, in the universities, in the law practices, in Washington, in Atlanta, perhaps even here, no longer believe that? Not only do many Americans disagree when it comes to opinion, many Americans frankly disagree when it comes to the facts. No one can agree on the facts of a case any longer. Truth has been slaughtered in the streets, as Isaiah said. What a sad state of affairs. How in the world can you build a life? How can you build a nation? How can you build a family when people cannot agree on basic facts? You know what they do believe in? They believe in power. And the only thing that is true is that which yields and produces more power for me and my agenda. Uh, that, that, that is a lengthy way of saying our nation in many ways, not totally, but in the centers of power and other places, even marriages, is become thoroughly postmodern. That means we're beyond believing in facts, beyond believing in truth. Well, I've got good news for you today. When Jesus Christ rose from the grave, God established truth in Jesus. That's what He did. Now, uh, Matthew 28, of course, and I'm going to make a very obvious statement, and someone should give me an award for it, but Matthew 28 follows Matthew 26 and Matthew 27. <laughs> Bob Muller, I knew I could count on you. Thank you. But Matthew 26 and Matthew 27 are some of the most difficult passages of Scripture to read. Jesus is in a bare-knuckled, figuratively speaking, a bare-knuckled brawl with leadership in Israel. And that's what happens here. Look uh, back at Matthew 26, verses 2 through 4, just as a sample. And this sets the tone for Matthew 26 and Matthew 27. Look here. In verse number 2 of Matthew 26, Jesus said, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man, which was an exalted title for Christ, will be delivered up and crucified. Then the chief priests and scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. That defines Matthew 26 and Matthew 27. Whether it happens to be his run-ins and his uh, verbal brawl with the religious leaders, whether it happens to be his disciples fleeing from him, in, in every respect and in every way, there is nothing but conflict, controversy, and at the end, they kill Jesus. At this time then, Jesus is the most despised and unpopular person on the earth. No one stands with him except his mother and a few of her friends and the Apostle John when he's dying on the cross. That's it. Of all the people that had followed him, they had abandoned him. Jesus is the most unpopular person on the earth. But look at verses 1 through 5 of Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, so God performed a great work even after the Sabbath. He's changing the calendar here. Moving from the Sabbath to the Lord's Day, which is Sunday now. Uh, so after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Now when God pulls off an earthquake, something great is about to happen. That's not what they were doing for Jesus earlier. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. What's about to happen is so important, God initiates it with an angel. 
and came and rolled back the stone from the door of the tomb and sat on it. Now the stone was not rolled away so Jesus could get out, but so that onlookers could get in. Verse 3, His countenance was like lightning and His clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of Him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. Everything here in this text is thoroughly contrary to everything that had happened in the previous two chapters. When Jesus was slaughtered at the cross, He was the most unpopular and despised person on the earth. But God changed all of these things in the next chapter. On Friday, Jesus was the most despised, but come Sunday, He's the most exalted by God the Father. God the Father took a stand for Jesus Christ. And my, uh, my remark to you is this, if Jesus Christ was good enough for the Heavenly Father. When, oh when, will He be good enough for this world? When, oh when, will He be good enough for you? If the Father took a stand for Jesus, does it not behoove us to all take a stand for Jesus? He may in this day be the most despised. His truth may be despised. His morality may be despised. His view of sexuality and creation may be the most despised. But God, the, listen, make no mistake about it. God the Father has an incurable zeal, if I can put it that way, for standing for the truth of Jesus Christ. And He says to all the earth, you stand with me as I stand next to my Son. Don't you think it's time to stand for Jesus? You know, at the end of the message, we uh, usually do a song. And we're going to invite you to take your stand for Christ, to come and give your heart and life to Him and say yes to Jesus Christ, to follow Him in baptism, and then to publicly, openly identify with this church to be a servant of His, and we'll give you that opportunity. And, and ladies and gentlemen, that's why we do April 23rd to the 26th with an evangelist. We'll take a stand for Jesus Christ. So truth was resurrected then, but there's a second thing. Not only truth, but love. The resurrected Jesus resurrects your hope for love. Now look at verses 6 through 10, and there are two things here that are profoundly loving. He says, He is not here, for He is risen, as He said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And quickly, go quickly, and tell His disciples that He's risen from the dead. And indeed, He's going before you into Galilee, and there you will see Him. Behold, I have told you. And so they went out quickly from the tomb with uh, fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held, held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them again, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus could conquer the effects of death in one of two ways. Either he could escape the cross with angelic and divine intervention, or he could take another approach. Now, Peter got a bit upset when they tried to arrest Jesus, and if you look back at verse 53 of Matthew 26, you'll find what took place. He pulled out his sword, and aiming for someone's head and neck, he got their ear. That's what a fisherman does with a sword here, at least in the first century. But in... uh, Verse number 53, Jesus told him to put back his sword. Actually, he did that in verse 42. And look what he says in verse 53. Put back your sword, or do you not think, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Now, how many were a legion? 
a legion with six or 7,000 Roman soldiers. Multiply that times 12. Jesus is stating, I can have tens of thousands, dozens of thousands of angels at my disposal if I wanted to escape this arrest and the crucifixion. Now, the old gospel song said he could have called 10,000 angels. Well, it, it, it frankly was about seven times that many. He could have called. Jesus could have escaped the effects of death simply by calling for divine intervention. And can't you imagine, oh, Michael, the archangel, standing on the ramparts of heaven, looking down and saying, Jesus, please, do something. Do something. For God's sake, do something, Jesus. Wave your hand. Nod your head. Cry out a little bit. Do something. Don't go through this. Can you imagine? And yet, he was not only silent before men, he was silent before God as well. Well, the second way he could escape the effects of death were not only to call out for angelic intervention, which he did not do. The second way is to go through the cross and die and be raised from the dead. And that is the way Jesus chose to escape the effects and the power of death. That's precisely what Jesus did. So to be raised from the dead, however, you've got to have a what? Well, you've got to have a death. And so Jesus endured the death. Jesus chose death. And when he died on the cross, he purchased justification or total purity before God for anyone who will repent and believe. That's what Jesus did. And to prove it to the world, he was raised from the dead. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered up because of our transgressions and raised because of our justification. How do we know that God the Father accepts the cross for payment for the penalty of our sin? How do we know the cross satisfies the justice of God? How do we know that we're free from paying a fine to the court of God for our own sins, which is eternal death, because of the death of Christ? How do we know these things are true? Well, God raised Jesus from the dead. He is the receipt. The resurrection is the receipt of the cross. Uh, somebody has wisely said that when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished, and the resurrection is the exclamation point. And that is an excellent way to understand. There is a great relationship then between the resurrection and the cross. We can trust the resurrection paid for our sins, because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's why Jesus died. But what amazing love. But that's not all. There's also a loving label for failures. Now, back in verse number 56 of chapter 26, it says at the end of that verse that all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now, they had pledged their allegiance and loyalty. They were quite overconfident in themselves in the time of trial and temptation and error. In fact, Peter got backed down several times, one by a young Jewish girl. He couldn't even stand up to her withering interrogation about his identity, whether he was with Christ or not. And so they, they failed. And so at this moment here, when Jesus is risen, they have this dark cloud of failure over their heads like many of you do today. Because of failure. Now look what Jesus says to, about them in verse number 10. He's told them, You'll know it's me that I'm risen from the dead because I, I will appear, but I will visit with you in Galilee. But look at the label he places on them in verse number 10. Look. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my... What? Brethren. To go to Galilee. Don't tell my betrayers. That's not what he labels them as. Don't tell those who forsook me. Don't chastise them. Their hearts are broken. 
They're lowly and they're humble. When you go back, meet them with this dark cloud of guilt hanging over their head and go tell my brethren. Now, it's, it's rather interesting if you do a study in the Gospel of Matthew about the use of the word brethren. Now, we've studied this on Wednesday nights and it's the most remarkable insight. Back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus redefined what it meant to be family in the kingdom of God. So his family came to him, and someone came to Jesus and said, Your mother and brothers are here. And he looked at the crowd before them and said, Who are my mother and brothers? He waved at the crowd and said, Behold, my mothers and brothers and sisters, for anyone who does the will of God is my brother. Well, these fellows have not done the will of God, but Jesus elevates them to that status because when someone repents and places faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus no longer evaluates them on the basis of their merits, their performance, or their behavior. What Jesus Christ does is that Jesus begins to evaluate them on the basis of His grace is what Jesus does. Hey, you want to lose the guilt? You want to lose the sorrow? You want to lose the misery of your failure? You want to get past the poor memories that afflict you and persecute you into anxiety? Then come to Jesus Christ and trust His cross and resurrection and believe that when Jesus died on the cross, He made a great exchange with you. He took on your identity at the cross as a sinner and paid for it in order to transfer His identity as exalted, loved, and glorified to you. Who in the world would have such a love like this but Him? Only Jesus has such a love. There's not a love like this anywhere if we will trust Jesus. And, and I need to make this point. It's not enough to trust God. Unless you mean by that, you trust Jesus Christ. It is not enough to trust God for your answered prayers. It's not enough to trust God for healing. It's not enough to trust God to provide for you. If you want to be made right with God, you've got to go further and trust Jesus' cross and resurrection. A general unnamed faith is not sufficient for God. God the Father has given majesty and glory to Jesus Christ, and He demands of all the earth that we give Jesus Christ glory and honor by placing our faith explicitly in Him, especially His cross and resurrection. Can you do that today? Well, love has been resurrected with Jesus, and truth has been resurrected with Jesus. April 23rd, we will extend to our whole community the love of God and the truth of Christ. But there's a third thing that was resurrected, and that is power. The resurrected Jesus resurrects your hope for power. Now, I don't know if when you've been reading this text in Matthew 28, if you've ever noticed the large words that are used here in all of the alls, um, stated and implicit. Uh, let, let, let's look at one of them. From verses 11 through 15, the Jews go and they manipulate the soldiers. The soldiers come and they say the body's gone. In fact, you can go to Israel today and look into the tomb and you know what you're going to find in the tomb of Jesus Christ? Absolutely nothing when it comes to a human body. And they uh, come to the leaders and say the, the body's gone. And the leaders say, well, we need to concoct a story and explain. You see, it wasn't enough that Jesus rose from the dead. These were the, this was the kind of crowd, and some of their offspring are with us today, who say, it, it, you know, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. Doesn't matter what the facts are. 
And so they concoct a story. And so verse 13, here's the story. Tell them, quote, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. Now, it's a remarkable thing to me, but the Bible takes objections to the Christian faith and records them. It puts them front and center. Here's an objection to the Christian faith and an alternative explanation. And you know why? Because every alternative explanation for the Christian faith is as silly as verse number 13. Oh, indeed it is. Now think about this. The disciples came and stole his body while we Roman soldiers slept. If Roman soldiers fell asleep on duty, they were begging to be executed. The disciples were not courageous enough to come steal the body. They are hiding in an undisclosed location. They're not the kind to do that. They ran and fled from Jesus, not to him. And then, who's going to move the stone? This is one of the silliest explanations, as are all alternative explanations, to the truth of Jesus Christ. And so the Bible's not hesitant to record this particular explanation. So what we have here is all, all assurance. There is no objection to the Christian faith. Listen, there is no objection to the Christian faith, especially the resurrection of the dead, that is legitimate or reasonable. They are all illegitimate and unreasonable. So, all assurance, but look at verse 18. Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Nothing escapes the rule of Jesus Christ if he wants to rule it. So, all authority. Then verse 19, all nations. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. I mean, from, from India over to first century version of Latin American countries, and everything north and south from one pole to the next, you'll not find any exigency, you'll not find any circumstance that is too great for my gospel or my call. All nations. And then look at verse uh, number 20. Teaching them to observe all things that I commanded. Jesus Christ is not embarrassed by any of His commandments. He doesn't hide and He doesn't obscure them. He expects His followers to embrace them with relish. And then, at the end of verse 20, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That There are at least five all stated or implied here in the text. And Jesus says, I'm with you always. So there's never a time when He's not with His followers, whether they feel like it or not. He is always there to power, to empower, to counsel, to forgive, to restore, to guide, to direct at all times. Listen, Jesus' power is so great that he sends a very modest church with the expectation that change will follow when they go into the world. Why? Because there's nothing that Jesus wants to change that he cannot change. And he can take anyone in the world and transform that person and make him or her one of his disciples. Oh, about 20 years ago, the nation of Uganda was perishing because of the HIV virus. There's terrible promiscuity there. And uh, they happened to link up with a Southern Baptist youth minister by the name of Richard Ross. And Richard came and consulted with them about his True Love Waits program. The uh, president and the first lady of that nation got a hold of it. They were believers themselves, began to implement the True Love Waits program through uh, their health department, which essentially was because I love God. 
I love my future spouse and I love myself. I'm going to wait until marriage before I become involved sexually. One man, one woman, for life, and sex only between two married people, a husband and wife in marriage. They implemented that in the nation of Uganda and saved the nation because they implemented the command of Christ. The Supreme Soviet leader in the 80s was Mikhail Gorbachev, as another example. In order to be the supreme leader of the Soviet Union, you had to avow atheism. And Mikhail Gorbachev did, though he and his wife's parents were executed because they believed in God and because they were church people of the Russian Orthodox Church. And for decades, Mikhail Gorbachev took a stand on atheism. And yet, in 2008, he was baptized into his church professing his faith in Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ could do this there, imagine what he could do here. And if Jesus Christ could do that with them, imagine what he could do with you and with others. And listen, you don't have to wait till next week. You can come to him now. He is risen he is true, He is full of love, and He's very eager and generous with His power. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Are you willing right now to set aside anything that keeps you from following Jesus? Is there anything bigger or greater than Him? Anything at all? Is there anything that you're not willing to forsake in order to have Him? Set that aside. Set it aside. And then is there any good reason for you not to call on Him today and plead with Him by His grace because of His cross and resurrection to embrace you in faith. Will you take your stand for Him today? We'll sing a song in just a moment. Our staff will be here. I'm inviting you to finally take a stand for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus is worthy. His Father has done it. And the Holy Spirit is now moving on your heart to take a stand for Jesus Christ. Our staff will be here to help you with that decision. Maybe your stand will mean that you finally abandon your all and give yourself to Jesus Christ. Maybe it means you've already done that, but you need to follow Him in baptism. Maybe it means you need to start serving the Lord by becoming part of a local church, and God's inviting you to this one. If He is, we do too. Let's quickly stand together, and we're going to invite you and give you that opportunity. Dear Lord, we praise you because you're true. You've never misled a single person, and you are love, and how amazing it is that you are zealous for our interest. I don't understand why, but God, I bless you for it. And you are the epitome of power. You can do anything in our lives that we need, even cancel our guilt and sin. And I want to pray that you'll help friends today to set aside anything that keeps them from Christ. Would you intervene by your Holy Spirit to make that real? And help them to trust you now and take a stand for Jesus Christ. In His name we pray.